Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Is the YOLO attitude infiltrating banking yet? Maybe, says our guest, Dr. Usman Chohan, who is so ahead of the curve, his publisher suggested not to make YOLO investing the title of his latest book because it's not super searchable yet. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson. And on this episode of Breaking Banks Asia, we're starting to dive into something we've been thinking about a lot recently. And that's how attitudes to life, the universe and everything, is changing how we think about money and ultimately banking. Usman's book is actually called Activist Retail Investors and the Future of Financial Markets, Understanding YOLO Capitalism. He's an economist from Pakistan who has dived deeply into theories around cryptocurrencies, but he's also the co-founder of the Centre for Aerospace and Security Studies, CAS, and founder of the International Association of Hyperpolyglots, the club for people who can speak six or more languages. Dr. Usman Chohan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, to start off, I understand that you play the sitar. Huh? Yeah. Um, you know what's cool about the sitar? I've been playing it a lot. And there is a strong legend, 400-year-old legend, that if you play the sitar really, really well, the great masters of this instrument were so good at it, they could influence the natural world. They could influence the weather basically. And I've been playing it so hard, I've basically caused El Nino. That's what's happened. So you it's see. you that we have to blame for the uh, the chaotic weather <laughs> this summer. And You're welcome. Let's talk about your field of interest, which is digital currencies and everything around those. Let's talk about YOLO capitalism. Why should bankers be worried about it? YOLO capitalism is essentially a state of mind, and it's a state of mind which is very anti-authority or anti-traditional structures, and those structures include the banks. One of the key movements of YOLO capitalism is the GameStop short squeeze, which is still in our recent memory. And it was hedge funds, not banks precisely, but uh, hedge funds that took the brunt of the public uh, animosity. I mean, there was an ideological drive behind it. So traditional structures have to be wary of it. And some, you know, adaptive institutions have piled in along with the YOLO investors. So it has been a complex sphere of interaction between a small scale agency and mainstream structures. Bankers seem to be quite aware of it. Some are even quite sympathetic to what has happened. Uh, and, you know, I thought I was deep down worried that maybe this this concept would expire quickly and we'd go back to business as usual. But uh, at least in popular culture, there are some great movies coming out. Dumb Money is coming out in September, for example. And uh, Wall Street Bets is still a vibrant space for uh, investors to engage with. So there's Still plenty happening uh, for for not just bankers, but financial institutions, regulators, and even small-scale investors to keep at least an eye on how uh, small-scale investing can take shape going forward. Well, cryptocurrencies and digital currencies more generally, they are the epitome, 
I guess, of YOLO capitalism, aren't they? They uh, certainly uh, are. The interesting thing, if I take you back, um, we lose this sometimes in the noise, is that cryptocurrencies begin with an anarchist premise that you and I can engage in free and private exchange uh, that is voluntary uh, in new instruments to which we ascribe value. That is a very anarchist premise. YOLO capitalists, however, are very much grounded in old school creation of capital, which is to say they want to use the stock market, the old school stock market, as the vehicle for personal enrichment. And they may not be as ideologically bound as at least the hardcore adherents of cryptocurrencies, which is to say they do want to make a quick buck in the way that a quick buck would have been calculated 50 years ago. That there is a sort of um, philosophical resonance with the past for YOLO capitalists that isn't there with cryptocurrencies. Obviously, we've heard a lot about YOLO capitalism in America. Where else are you actually seeing it? You are seeing YOLO capitalism across the board, which is to say traditional uh, asset classes as well as uh, newer alternate uh, asset classes. However, it seems that the environment has shifted today in 2023 as compared to in 2021 when the GameStop short squeeze happened, which is to say um, it was a different time in the sense that interest rates were very different. There was surplus cash uh, back then. Savings were high. Uh, or the amount of monetary surplus floating about was high. People's activities were curtailed. They were sitting around at home in lockdowns, didn't have much to do. Uh, There was a sort of resentment at seeing the stock market, if you recall, shooting up in 2020 while the real economy was sort of frozen, as many things were not active or at normal levels. Whereas now we have the economy in most, nearly everywhere, approaching the normalized levels and people are out and about and they are traveling and yet the monetary contraction that has happened since then means that people don't have the same size of savings to do that so the paradigm in which they're operating is different and and i as i saw interest rates rise was worried that maybe yolo capitalists simply won't have enough money to throw about and and in fact that isn't true because it's not like people's levels of prosperity have markedly improved where they'll say okay i'm tired of playing that funny casino that funny business people are still struggling in in other ways and so the the urge to make a quick buck is eternal as long as there's inequality and as long as human beings have desires and aspirations that exceed their material uh endowments there'll still be a bit of the yolo uh, and it's it's almost a generational thing too. So Gen Z, is particularly and even millennials uh, like myself, are very proactive in this stuff. And our YOLO mindset is shaped by events that have receded but still linger in the mind, such as the 2008 financial crisis. So YOLO is a state of mind that isn't going away anytime soon. So you know that's something that we should expect to stick around with yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. Like millennials had 2008. Gen Z have the pandemic, it's going to have legs, that mindset. Do you see these attitudes in our region? And if so, where? YOLO is a generational aspect, and we have a generation, uh, this cohort in Asia as well, which is to say young people are also interested in uh, engaging with banking and financial structures and 
getting their piece, they're getting their cut out of it. So Asian investors, young investors are in our research and they are a material thing. And I, I have been following your podcast and I have heard other speakers also talk about how this is an exciting space and Asia overall has young people excited about new forms of banking, disruptions in banking. Are activist retail investors having an impact in influencing markets? Absolutely. Um, Asian investors, um, retail investors are having an impact. It may not be as large or as disruptive as it was in the U.S., but that also reflects the way that financial markets operate differently here or participation in equity markets is different. But YOLO capitalism or as a state of mind, uh, more in the philosophical sense, but also in the praxis is uh, certainly uh, noticeable in the financial markets in in Asia. And it has to do with the amount of savings and how they are deployed by young people to supplement their salaries, which are, you know, are wage differential competing with an high inflation rates. So those functions are part of the material circumstances here. And we do observe that. Uh, since the book is already out, we cannot incorporate the new data, but it is something that various authors do follow. So I continue to ask uh, those who will keep their ear to the ground, and they certainly corroborate the notion that in Asia, in the Far East uh, financial markets, uh, the youth is deploying capital in ways that would signal a proactive retail investment culture. You are working on two more books right now on NFTs and the DAO, Decentralized uh, Autonomous Organizations. Are consumers backing away from a more decentralized financial world? Uh, Yes and no. In the cyclical sense, they have backed away, uh, which is to say we are in what people, you know, colloquially refer to as a crypto winter. And that sentiment has prevailed. The notion that cryptocurrencies were some form of hedge against traditional uh, finance hasn't proven true as the markets declined in traditional asset classes last year. So did cryptocurrencies. So it didn't turn out to be the digital gold that everyone expected. Precisely. It hasn't been a hedge as gold might have been. Uh, so that notion has fallen by the wayside. So in a cyclical sense, yes. But you also notice that as traditional, there are hiccups in the traditional banking system, such as the failures of three banks that happened in March, which you have covered on this podcast. Uh, Crypto suddenly got renewed interest because people, uh, I writing, working on these books, I have noticed that there is a certain disenchantment of the young generation, Gen Z, uh, with how capitalism works. And that disenchantment is basically an allocation exercise. They'll be a little bit more disenchanted with one thing at a time, and they'll be a little bit more disenchanted with another thing, which is to say that they were disenchanted with crypto in 2022, but now with the bank failure, suddenly crypto doesn't seem as bad. And so uh, there is always that race between this, what they call the smart money and the dumb money, and those are, of course, misnomers. But the fact is that uh, young people are likely to renew their interest in the alternative asset classes, particularly as we see the difficulties of traditional financial structures, uh, banking structures in Asia, in Europe, and in the U.S. falter, faltering because of the way they have been positioned for low interest rates for so long. And having to grapple with high interest rate environments has been difficult for everybody. So I I would say that cyclically, uh, yes, the interest in cryptocurrencies has diminished, but in the longer run, they'll be up 
plenty of good reasons for them to take a look at it again. GameStop and another US stock, AMC, are the biggest examples of small investors banding together to create a huge movement for stock. Do you think there is an equivalent in banking? For example, when deposit customers move their savings out of banks and into a global digital platform? The answer is there are the first signs of that because of the bank failures that have happened uh, this year. Uh, one in Europe, Credit Suisse, then three in the United States, and, and there may be a, a wave of them coming soon. And, and so you're seeing the first uh, signs that on the depository side, you may have large uh, movements driven by small-scale participants towards uh, banking constructions, banking structures that are different from what we have typically had. This has to do with the trust in the banking system and the reliance on the banking system faltering. Banks. Many people in the young generation, despite strong marketing efforts and despite uh, attempts to coax them, uh, are not very good at persuading young people. And this is not my judgment per se, but various authors who have contributed to the work that we do uh, have found this in their research that young people simply aren't persuaded by the mechanisms uh, of banking that exist. Now, is there a robust alternative? Because one is one is very different in one's behavior between investing in a YOLO mindset versus depositors. It's, it, it has a different psychological matrix, which requires maturity. These are my savings, man. I don't want to just, you know, throw them about. It's a little bit different from what one puts aside for investing in equity markets or other things. Uh, with the savings uh, and the banking aspect, you already do see apps. You already do see things like DAOs. You already do see uh, other vehicles that are decentralized that offer something like that. But their reliability is an open question as well. You have these yield products and you have these yield farming mechanisms, which are very novel. And so dependency on these new uh, mechanisms of wealth creation in a decentralized manner using retail deposits exist and they are gaining adherence, but not at the rate that one would expect. So once again, it is a question of young people, uh, small scale retail investors uh, being disenchanted with one system versus being disenchanted with the other. Is there a difference in how developing Asian markets are evolving versus more mature markets in terms of wielding retail investor power? I, I would say that there is, and this is an observation that is somewhat anecdotal, so don't take my word for it, but uh, from the research that I have read and from the contributions made by other authors to projects that I'm working on, it seems that the uh, developed markets have a certain, let's say, threshold that they have achieved in terms of access to finance, uh, whereas the emerging markets, the developing Asian markets, have uh, a leapfrogging character, which is to say that they adopt new instruments with more rapidity. They adopt them with a greater fervor, which means that the leapfrogging actually advances the character of banking uh, and financial or retail investor uh, power in a way that one might not have envisaged were those countries also of an equivalent maturity. So I think the maturity is a double-edged sword because with 
high penetration and mature markets, strong regulation, you have certain advantages, but innovation tends not to be one of them, or the adoption of innovations tends not to be one of them. So this double-edged sword is actually in favor of the developing Asian markets, where young people are far savvier in their adoption, or an emergent middle class as a whole, even if you are not a young person per se, more options are available to you, and the mindset with which you adopt those innovations is different. And, and there is emergent research on this um, that, that suggests that uh, developing Asian markets are better places to deploy new innovations. Uh, part of that also has to do with the inequality, uh, the economic inequality that one finds. And I'll give you some funny examples of that. There's this NFTs-based game uh, called Axie Infinity, and its largest uh, participatory base is the Philippines. Even though the tax uh, bureau there has said that this is taxable income, and already what you can earn from that game is lower than the minimum wage of the Philippines. It just happens to be the case that they're far more eager to do it this way than to do it in terms of getting a regular job and doing uh, other stuff. So you, you'd see far more uh, adaptiveness in developing Asian markets uh, rather than in mature markets around the world. Thank you, Usman. We'll dive into the books that you're currently working on after this short break. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Asia? Reach out to learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows. With an audience across Asia of CEOs, CTOs, founders and opinion leaders, Breaking Banks Asia is where the forward-thinking conversations are happening about the Asian fintech and banking scene. Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Breaking Banks Asia or go to www.provoke.fm. Welcome back. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and we're talking to Dr. Usman Chohan. Usman, we've been thinking a lot about attitudes to money here at Breaking Banks Asia lately. And you've written and are in the process of still writing a couple of books that highlight some interesting trends that will affect how we think about money and how we are thinking about money. Can you tell us about them? Uh, certainly. So the book that uh, brought uh, was brought to your attention was on YOLO capitalism and activist retail investors, which had a equity markets bent as well as alternative financial markets. Uh, I have a new book coming out soon, which is on the post-pandemic society and the crises. And what I argue in this is that, you know, life was hard during the pandemic, but there are countries where the post-pandemic life is much, much more difficult because of inflation, because of inequality and so on. So if you thought the pandemic was bad, wait till you see what's happening now. And there are many case studies for that. Then there is an edited volume coming out next year, which focuses on the value and disvalue of NFTs in a multidisciplinary manner. So we have lawyer, legal scholars, sociologists, economists, and all talking about what are the possibilities was this just a fad? How has this shaped the, the markets? What value do such things add? And this is a very fun thing. And I honestly believe that NFTs are not something that was a, a one trick pony. There is new technologies based on blockchains that have yet to arise. Uh, and then uh, the other edited volume coming out in the middle of next year is on decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. DAOs are very, very new still. And they have had a very sort of lackluster or clunky beginning. Um, they're vulnerable to hacks and manipulations, but is there a possibility of envisaging a new form of organization? And the answer is yes, because the way our organizations work these days, um, they don't particularly work well. 
So are there possibilities driven by technology and by novel mindsets that can optimize how we structure and organize various things? And that's what that book is about. So the nerdier you are, the more you'll enjoy this stuff, I believe. The ideas around DAOs are so interesting, aren't they? It all goes back to that point you made about viable alternatives. In banking, there are no viable alternatives, but DAOs could be. I'm going to bring in our producer, Karis Palmer, here, who you, Osman, have worked with in the past, as she has some really interesting views on how DAOs fit in with this whole notion of anti-capitalism. Go for it, Karis. I think it feeds into this idea of questionable capitalism. You know, I think actually it goes back to this whole notion of decentralization and how people feel about it. So it's not just, you know, if you're going to talk about decentralized currencies or decentralized power structures, why wouldn't you have the same thing with an organization? I mean, the the, the reason people are anti-capitalism, I think, largely is because of the poor behavior of organizations. <laughs> so well you know, that's said. Where, like that maybe that's the root of it, right? So if you can fix that part of it, you might actually fix this kind of backlash to capitalism. Uh, I agree with you. I fully agree with you. And, you know, this takes us back to the 1850s. I mean, Marx was writing based not on society as a whole, but his initial lens was, look how anti-democratic corporations are. Look how awful these things are with the boards and the managers and how we work. So we're back to the 1850s. How does it feel to be in 1850 again? I suppose it's this weird thing, like talking about the younger generations, it is interesting that they are suddenly thinking about different ideologies and talking about socialism a lot the big big huge difference being the technology platforms and the the fact that we have a blockchain and those sorts of technologies not that they're an answer to the biggest issues but at least they provide a kind of way of thinking about things that takes power away from people that probably shouldn't have it <laughs> or as well. I agree what do you, do you think that the CBDC is an alternative option for people that are disgruntled with traditional banking? Yes, uh, the question of CBDCs being a substitute seems to be a very dicey one because the very precepts of a central bank digital currency are so different from those of a cryptocurrency. I have uh, heard previous discussions on your podcast and they're very good on what the nuances around this are. And I tend to agree with them. However, I also believe that CBDCs are not of the same category as the other digital currencies. And cryptocurrencies are an answer to a specific problem, which is what CBDCs perpetuate. And there are countries that have gotten on this bandwagon, it isn't just China. For example, Pakistan is launching a CBDC. Why is it doing it? It doesn't know. Our central bank has no idea why it is doing it. Then instead of thinking about the value of the rupee, which is the currency there, and protecting it, it has fallen from 100 to a dollar to 300 to a dollar in two years. But they're not thinking so hard about protecting the digital or the analog rupee. So it doesn't really matter what it is. And I think that the credit theory of money comes in very important. The, the, the real source of money is when the bank issued you the mortgage and issued me the credit card and issued uh, the car loan. That does doesn't matter if that is of some sort of pile of cash somewhere, it obviously is virtual, but that doesn't get resolved. And so the fact is that 
a, there is almost a normative isomorphism in CBDCs, which is to say that, oh, that government did it, so I think we should do it. I have no idea why we should do it, but we're doing it. And, and that sort of adoption is probably even more naive than YOLOs who jump in, uh, buy a stock because their buddies did it. I think this is even more naive than that. So uh, there's a lot more thinking behind the rationales and what is the problem that one seeks to solve in society. That that sort of cross-questioning hasn't taken place uh, by even institutional regulators, institutional participants, I mean, private sector as well as governments. They haven't looked at this carefully enough of what is the problem they seek to solve uh, and how do they make value creation for the public? They haven't really thought it through. That's my two cents on that. And given how much they'll have to build and how much it'll cost and the difficulties around just setting it up and using it and turning it into a valid replacement for existing cross-border channels. It seems like nobody has a good answer for that yet, do they? Precisely. And there is a very, very dark side to the novel technologies in finance. One can call it the Tracers in the Dark, which is a very good book that came out quite recently about how this st stuff is being used by the most monstrous elements of a society. I mean, the worst things that you can imagine as a mother, as a person, as a citizen, whatever. So well, the, only if you seriously read like the U.S. Justice Department's research on this or how they prosecute this, do you get a glimpse of how there is a dark side to all this which is not just a problem in developed countries where law enforcement is proactive, but in emerging markets where criminality has a different character because of the lack of enforcement or the lack of oversight, there these things can be even more dangerous. And we need to talk about this because finance or money is both a, a good thing and a bad thing, as in it is a, it's instrumental. And so it's an instrument to accomplish other things. What are the things we seek to accomplish? There is a morality issue there that we have to be very careful about as well. Thank you very much for joining us, Osman. It's been great having you on today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.